Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemaim ve'et In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That was the first verse from the book of Genesis. Ein arke, hein o logos, kai ho logos, hein pros ton teon, kai teos, ein ho logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That was from the first verse of the Gospel of John. And yes, it's all Greek to me. For a theologian like me, the concept of creation, creation ex nihilo, that is from nothing, is mysterious. That probably goes for most non-believers too. But for an evolutionary geneticist like Nick Lane of University College London, there are some clues about how it all got started. Here he is speaking on the Naked Scientist show Silicon Sailors, Robots Take to the Waves. All we know is that all the living organisms we've ever looked at are plainly related and so almost certainly derived from a single common ancestor. The fossil record of bacterial cells goes back about 3,500 million years, that's 3.5 billion years, and so far as we can tell, these cells were very similar to their modern equivalents. Creation is our subject this week. No pressure there, then. With me to discuss it are Dr Charlotte Kensington from the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of St Edmunds College, whose research focuses on the ecology and diversity of the first large complex macro-organisms which include fossils of some of the world's earliest animals. And Professor Keith Fox, Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, Minister in the Church of England, whose research interests concern DNA structure. Welcome to you both. Charlotte, if the 3.5 billion years old cells are similar to those of today, as suggested in our clip, how did things progress? That's an excellent question. So there are a number of different steps that you need to to take. So the first, of course, is to make a cell. And there's a, but once we have our cell, to get to the organisms that we can kind of see with our eyes you need to um, make a eukaryotic cell. So this is unlike a bacterial cell, it's a cell like ours, which have a nucleus and mitochondria and all of these organelles which have kind of specialised functions. And the way that we think that happened is through something called endosymbiosis. So one cell engulfed another, but it didn't digest it. It just instead kept it in a little bag, in a little membrane. And then over time, those cells started to work cooperatively and some of these engulfed cells became mitochondria and in plants became chloroplasts. And then once you've got your eukaryotic cell, then you need to make a multicellular organism. And how that happened is still quite a puzzle. But we think that some of the first instances of multicellularity would cells coming together briefly to cooperate so there are a couple of slime molds that do this today. So they come together um, to form a tall little structure, which then helps with reproduction. So the taller you are, the further you can kind of shoot your offspring and the more likely they are to land on a kind of nice bit of uncolonized substrate. And so then there are so many benefits to being multicellular. So you can have specialized 
organs, specialized cells, specialized tissues. So you can separate sort of reproduction and uh, resource gathering and respiration. And so once you can do that, you can then kind of become much more efficient at all of these different processes. And once you have multicellularity, you can then specialize all sorts of different parts of yourself and you can compete with each other and you can find ecological niches. And then you get this whole kind of almost a feedback cascade and um, something called the Red Queen hypothesis, where um, essentially animals are kind of evolving together and plants are evolving together. Everything's evolving together to find different niches and to kind of adapt into them. Charlotte, does that mean this process happened on land or underwater or don't we know? We think most of the kind of first complex life happened underwater. It's hotly debated where the the first cells originated. So some people think this was a warm, shallow pool that maybe wasn't connected to the ocean and was just a, a separate little cradle. But certainly all of the evidence we have for life is marine up until around 500 million years ago. So, Keith, that sounds pretty random to me. Is it just by chance or is there something else going on here? I think that there's elements of chance in it and elements of purpose. But evolution itself is driven by mutations and mutations are random events. But the selection for that is then not random. That's according to the environment that the particular cell or organism finds itself in. And that environment can be both a physical environment and in terms of the competition with other organisms that are there. Uh, So in part, nature is an evolutionary arms race, um, but it's also an evolutionary cooperation uh, race. It's what's, if you like, to the best advantage of the particular cell or organism. And sometimes that means out-competing other organisms. And sometimes it will mean cooperating with them to best advantage. So it has always been, Keith. In the beginning, I, I used the term ex nihilo. I mean, how do you understand that? Because... Did it all come from nothing? It must have come from something. Tell me about that. Philosophers and theologians have debated that for millennia. Nothing, as we know, comes from nothing. If you like, it's whichever the argument was, the Kalam cosmological argument uh, is that everything that exists has a cause. If you like, it's one of the fundamental arguments for the existence of God. Uh, it's the, the universe we know started... Um, there was some debate over that historically, but since about the 1950s, we've known that the universe has a beginning, the Big Bang, and that something set it going. So out of nothing came something. Uh, we can debate, as some philosophers do, as to exactly what we mean by nothing, um, but clearly we have a lot of something now, and it came from somewhere, and that's if you like, one of the arguments for the existence of God. I suppose that we're taking that one step forward today, though it's not just where did matter come from but where did living matter come from and was that an inevitable consequence of the way in which matter works so that the physics of systems mean that living systems will inevitably arise uh, within that and did it need a god to come in and tinker with those things if you like to direct that process to make sure that that happened i think that's an open question as to, as to whether Um, Having set things going, a god would still be, if you like, supervening, looking over the whole process without necessarily having to tinker in and adjust the rules and the way in which things interact. So, Charlotte, how would you respond to that? I mean, do you feel there are kind of, I don't know, metaphorical truths, if you like, from some of the, let's start with the biblical account narratives of, of creation? Do they help people understand this cellular development? 
In terms of metaphorical truths, there's definitely some veracity to the order that things appear. So, for example, that sea creatures came before land creatures and that dry land came before animals and plants um, and that plants came after light. So there's definitely some um, veracity in the order of things. So I I understand um, a lot of the biblical stories as being more allegorical. So it is fundamentally, as small children, it's fundamentally baffling how you suddenly get all of these things and plants and dolphins and people and dogs and everything, let alone all of microbial life. And so having stories that help you to understand that, I think, a very powerful tool. And Keith, is that how you would teach it? You know, when you're you're actually teaching in Cambridge or Southampton, do you use biblical narratives to help young scientists understand these early processes? Or how do you go about it? No, I wouldn't use biblical narratives to explain that to, to scientists. Uh, the biblical accounts aren't scientific accounts in the way that we understand science. Uh, they're to do with meaning and purpose. They're to do about God and they're to, to talk about who we are in relation uh, to God. They're not scientific accounts. Uh, they were written to people three, four thousand years ago, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit more recent than that, um, to explain the uh, the way they saw the world in the context of their own particular uh, cultures, um, writing in ways that have meaning across the centuries, rather than actually dipping down and, and telling us the details of the science and the mechanics. That's not really what the, if you like, the biblical account is concerned with. If you like, the scientific account is for scientists to explore. And the scientists, if you like, a gift from God that enables us to be able to do that. Um, but it's not the prime purpose of the text. How much of this is random, Charlotte, like lightning? And how much of it is natural? So the, the lightning, I think, refers to the Miller-Urey experiment. So Miller and Urey um, generated in a, a flask in a lab this primordial atmosphere, and they shot lightning through it, and that generated some complex organic compounds, so amino acids, materials that you need in order to build a cell and then to build complex life. All of life today shares a single common ancestor, so we refer to that as the last universal common ancestor, So there are elements of genetic codes that everything that is alive today shares. And that would imply, although lightning is fairly frequent, and we might think of it as being fairly random in this, you know, suddenly spectacular things shooting through the atmosphere, that may have happened multiple times to generate all these organic compounds. But it seems that um, there's only one lineage that started from a, a unicellular organism and then going through this process that we discussed of becoming multicellular and then becoming um, a complex organism. So random chance would have probably played an an aspect in it, but there are a lot of steps. I I think there's a really helpful way of looking at things. It wasn't very many centuries ago when people would have believed in vital forces that were behind the chemistry of life, whereas actually there's nothing magical or mystical about the organic compounds that make up our cells. They obey ordinary chemistry. I think it was fascinating originally when people were able to synthesize something as simple as urea, a basic organic compound. And from then on, we know that we can make uh, chemically all of the the cells, individual components, whether it's nucleic acids, the proteins, the lipids, they are just chemistry in that sense. Now, then it is, I think, a big question as to how those could have come together, the complexity of that arisen with time. 
But again, it's a selection process. Whatever works is selected uh, and carries forward. We're talking about long periods of time. We're talking about massive numbers of, of molecules. Keith, you touched on earlier the Big Bang and the beginning, as it were. How close can we get to that? How much of that do we understand? How near are we to our understanding of this thing called the Big Bang? Well, I emphasize that I'm not a cosmologist or an atomic physicist or any of those. But my understanding is they can get right back to the equations, right back to a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. There comes a point at which quantum mechanics and cosmology and all those things just break down and the equations don't work and we can't understand it. So from that moment, Charlotte, before we take a break, how long was it before the first cells came into existence? So the Big Bang was around 14 billion years ago. And then in the intervening time, our solar system formed and then Earth. And so cells on Earth um, appeared, we think, around three and a half billion years ago. At least the oldest fossils we have of cells on this planet are three and a half billion years old. And they were very simple cells. Now, before that time, you have to go through all these other steps that we talked about of making the organic compounds and of making a cell and then actually fossilizing one. And there is so little volume of rock left from you know, three, three or four billion years ago that actually to, to have any evidence of life that old is astounding. And so it could have been much more common, but we just have these tiny, tiny little fractions of rock that are preserved. So you're talking about, I suppose, 10 billion years between the Big Bang and then um, life forming, at least on this planet. And it's interesting you say about that big time gap. Of course, our sun is a secondary star, that the elements that make up our world that we need, those complexity would be made in stars that would have then exploded afterwards and then come together to make ours. It's a bit of a throwaway phrase, but we are stardust. Hence that gap between the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago and the formation of our solar system, maybe four and a half billion years ago, and then life coming after that. So it's a long, long time after the Big Bang itself before we get anything that's able to take life in the form that we know it. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Keith Fox and Charlotte Kensington. We're discussing creation. In some ways, the celebration of Christmas and the Christian nativity are a human embodiment of this cosmic story. Simulating conditions on the planet when the first life would have emerged seems a tall order, but Marcus Reiser of the Francis Crick Institute in London devised an ingenious way of doing so in the laboratory. As he explained in the Naked Scientist show Biology's Biggest Mystery, The Origin of Life. It's all to do with scaling down. It's very small volumes of liquid, so we are not simulating ten thousands of liters of here in ocean. So we simulate little droplets, 40 microliters, 50 microliters, and we add different components that people believe could have existed on there here on Earth. And those people we talk to, they obtain this information from sediments or so from stones that they find around the world and they can date them. To this period. Everything is preserved from the time, so a lot of the things one needs to infirm, but there is some solid evidence from the geoscientists uh, which, which molecule is made up the early planet. So Keith, what is that solid evidence that Marcus was talking about? So our scientific explanations are inferences to the best explanation that we have at the time on the basis of the data that we have at any particular time. Um, so if you go back to Darwin and, and evolution Darwin, uh, could see things happening at the level of species. 
and had no idea about mechanisms by which that could take place. We now know far more about the molecular biology, the way the cells work, about the DNA sequences, the genetics, the genomics, which actually uh, reinforces Darwin's uh, basic message. And science changes uh, through the generations as we understand more, as our explanations uh, develop. Sometimes scientists get it wrong. Um, But on the basis of the development of science from Darwin onwards through the neo-Darwinian synthesis, is that this is definitely the best explanation now. It accounts for the way in which all organisms have the same genetic code. We have close similarity with other species. And that, that says that, yes, we do have a common ancestor that we could trace everything back to. There's uh, there's also evidence from the rock record here. So this geoscience or geophysical evidence. And that evidence takes the form of what the composition of our early planet was like. And some of this comes from meteorites. So these uh, bits of rock that date from the formation of our solar system that haven't been altered through um, plate tectonics or weathering and all of the other really complex processes that happen on our planet. And so they give us an idea of what materials would have gone to make up our planet. And we also have really, really ancient crystals, so four billion-year-old crystals of zircon, which contain bits of organic carbon and trace minerals that can give us an indication of what compounds were around four billion years ago. And we get other clues from the rocks as to what the composition of our atmosphere was like. So there's a mineral called uraninite, which is a compound that contains uranium. And it's only stable in uh, reducing conditions, so an atmosphere with no oxygen. And we find that as detrital grains, so grains that would have been tumbling around on the surface of the land or through a river. And so because those are preserved, and we know they were tumbling around in a river, we know there wasn't any oxygen in the atmosphere back in the day. So there are lots and lots of little bits of clues in rocks and in minerals that we can get, as well as evidence from um, genetics. And then we eventually get to Homo sapiens, sort of Johnny-come-lately, if, if you like. I'm told about 300,000 years ago. Is that right? And what light can you shed on the sort of the creation, if you like, of humankind? Fascinating question. We are definitely Johnny-come-latelys. If, if you take the analogy of the time being, say, the height of the Eiffel Tower, then we are in existence for the length of time equivalent to the skin of paint at the top. Throughout that evolutionary time, you can see the development and the, the, the way in which complex organisms have, have arisen. Um, as Charlotte said, how cells uh, come together to form multicellular organisms. Those multicellular ones have, have changed o- o- over time. Um, some persist for very long periods of time. Um, we have uh, hominids of one kind or another go back before humans um, but Homo sapiens, you're quite right in the way we know them, about two to 300,000 years. Human beings are very creative. I think we accept that. Um, are there any links between human creativity and biological creation? So absolutely. So the process of artificial selection, so how we um, produce uh, our crops, so wheat with nice big, big grains or corn with big kernels, and even so all our domestic animals, so dogs and cats, for instance, or pigs and sheep and cows. So all of that, we've selected these animals for particular traits. So with dogs, we want animals that are going to um, you know, protect us or keep us safe or keep us company. And so we've 
bred and selected for the animals that give us the traits that we're after or the plants that give us the biggest apples or the fattest corn kernels. And so exactly as Keith has said, those sort of adaptive processes would have happened naturally. So that's natural selection as Darwin presented it. And so there are really beautiful parallels there. So in artificial selection, we're picking the traits that we want. And in natural selection, the organisms that are best adapted to those environmental conditions, as Keith said, whether that's the physical environment or the other animals that are around it, those animals that have the best adaptations, they're going to leave most offspring. And so that population is going to go towards whatever traits are best suited to that environment. And then if the environment changes, then that allows organisms with other traits to kind of fill in a different niche. And in terms of our own creativity, maybe looked at it slightly theologically as well. If we're made in the image of a God who is a creator, then there's something inherent in our human nature uh, to be creative as well and to, to be able to follow that. And destructive, may I suggest, Keith? Uh, yeah, maybe that's not the image of God side of things. In the biblical imagery, we were told to take care of the creation. You could almost imagine it as being, uh, that's more than just sustaining it, but maybe taking what God had declared to be good and making it even better to look after that using our God-given creative abilities. Would you agree with J.S. Haldane that the creator has an inordinate fondness for beetles, Keith? Yeah, that's a, a good quote from Haldane. And there are a phenomenal number of beetles. But actually, when you drill down to it, there are a phenomenal number of all sorts of things. On the basis of numbers, probably viruses win in terms of the viruses in the oceans, etc., that are actually very helpful, that in, infect bacteria. I think the thing that I find most striking about this and the thing that I take away any time I think about this is just how much complexity there is in everything. And with your Beatles quote and, and your response, Keith, with the viruses, there's there's something really intriguing in that. So when we look at beetles, we can see the diversity. We can see that they're adapted to you know unique plants or unique circumstances and their colouring reflects everything about where they live and their interactions with predators. And then as soon as you mention the viruses and bacteria, you think, oh, of course, but we can't see those. And so it's only when you... You know, look under a microscope that you start to see all these things. And I forget the statistics, but there's such a tiny fraction of our ocean floor that we've actually looked at in detail, you know, a very small percentage. And you think even in that tiny percentage that we've looked at, there are just bizarre creatures and all sorts of different ecosystems that we wouldn't ever have imagined. And you think, well, what else might there be now? And also, what might there have been back in geological times? So we're talking about these tiny bits of ancient rock that we have. You know, what was in the rocks that we don't have? We live in a, a remarkable world where they, we've so far managed to explore such a tiny amount of it, both at the, the macro and the micro level. And uh, it's, it, it, it's awe-inspiring. There is something profound when I was listening to you, Charlotte, about talking about something so simple as a cell and yet you've made it incredibly complicated <laughs> and I, I think that there's something actually quite profound in that but before we end we have to talk about the end and the question is if we're to go out would it be with a bang like the beginning or a whimper Keith 
I really don't know the answer to that, but it could be either. I mean, ultimately, the universe will suffer from heat death, uh, where everything decays to nothing. But that's in 10 with so many noughts after the end of it, it's unthinkable. We are doing damage to our own uh, environment. Um, so we now live in what might be called the Anthropocene. We could go out with a bang. Uh, we could just slowly decay. Charlotte, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that based on your observation of organisms over long periods of time. Different um, lineages have different sort of lifespans, I guess. So you get some organisms, they say, that have hardly changed over hundreds of millions of years. And then some species that have a very short lifespan. I think we are unique in a way in the extent that which we sort of change the face of the land surface and all of the things that we're doing that change the atmosphere. But we know the atmosphere has gone through several perturbations um, throughout geological history. And as you say, we know there have been major mass extinctions. So I think to your question, Ed, of, of whether we go out with a, a bang or a wimper, if you're talking just about humans, then, I mean, who knows? But life on this planet, I don't think, will go extinct just because of something that we do. It will um, go extinct because the end of the universe or our sun dies. There will always be pockets of life that, you know, any anthropogenic effects won't touch so archaea living in pools or organisms at the bottom of the ocean and even in the permian this catastrophic um mass extinction there were still lineages of large life that persisted and that they adapted and refilled the niches and so yeah i don't i don't know whether it will be a, a bang or a whimper but it'll certainly be an interesting ride. We've been talking about beginnings, but we've reached an end. I hope you agree that we've thrown some light on creation, and thanks to my guests Keith Fox and Charlotte Kensington. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right or any subjects you'd like us to discuss. And if you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, which includes episodes on Einstein, nudge theory, racism and many, many more, you can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. And Merry Christmas to all Naked Reflections listeners and Happy New Year. <laughs>